Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello, and welcome to Food for Thought, a podcast gab fest where a multiracial mix of queer writers gather around the table to talk about sex, identity. What we like to read and who we like to read. Food for thought. Bottoms, tops, we all hate cops. <laughs> I got that from a protest sign. I didn't come up with that myself, but just FYI. Let's be honest, bottoms, bottoms, <laughs> bottoms. And we all still hate cops. <laughs> well, from from what we understand, though none of us here would know, we understand that verse as well. Also it's bottom verse, top verse, etc. Um <sighs> Joe Joe is like freaking out right now because he's like verse erasure. I'm a I'm a bottom who verses. <laughs> I, am, I am a bottom who verses. You know our friend of the friend of the podcast Tyler Mitchell once said to me. He said, "There's no such thing as verse. There's tops who bottom and bottoms who and top. also bottoms who don't bottom." And that's me. <laughs> ah, I love that, bitch. Right now, that's all of us. That is a hundred percent of us. Uh, I am Tommy Teebs Pico, Indigenous American poet screenwriter, single, not actively mingling, and unfortunately, I ate bagel bites without taking a lactate today, so I might have to mute myself because there is rumbles in my jungle. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I'm Fran. I'm a writer. I'm an editor. Um, And the only pigs we respect in this house are the ones that drink piss. Thank you very much. I plagiarized that joke from Rose Damu. Go find her on Twitter. <laughs> I'm Joseph Osmondson, scientist, nonfiction writer, and giant ball of sadness and rage. With the police sirens in the background. You can hear the <laughs> motherfucking police. Oh, it's an ambulance. Oh, no. Okay, I was going to say, basically, this is your typical emotional state anyway. Um, I'm Dennis Norris II, and I'm a reader and writer, a former figure skater, and I'm black as fuck and angry as fuck. And that's just how it is right now. Mm. That's where we are. Today was the first day where I was like, oh shit, I didn't wake up to the sound of helicopters. And I realized I had closed my window last night and I opened it up and I was like, (laughs) there they are. (laughs) They're your new security blanket. Uh, Yeah, so this is a a special episode of Food for Thought for these for these these jagged times. Uh, Dennis, you want to intro us in this episode today? Y'all, today, June 5th, would be Breonna Taylor's 27th birthday. She was a black woman, an essential worker, who was gunned down in her own home by police attempting an errant drug sting. We're recording today for Breonna, for George Floyd, Tony McDade, Sandra Bland, Ahmaud Arbery, and countless others. Loves, we are in a state of emergency. The state-sanctioned slaughter of black people cannot continue. We've pulled together our resources for an emergency episode dedicated entirely to the Black Lives Matter movement so we can offer up information on how to support. Rather than our typical episode, we'll be talking about the intersection of COVID and protests, looting and riots, not racist versus anti-racist, dismantling the police state, protesting safely, protesting from home and where to send your dollars. Take it away. 
That's right, Mama. As Dennis said, we are abandoning our usual format here um, and going to spend, you know, you know, we're going to spend a little time on each of these topics um, relevant to these um, this unique cultural moment we're in, which it really isn't all that unique considering it's been going on since the dawn of this nation. It literally Um, is a looted nation on looted land founded with looted lives. You know what I mean? That's it. And, um, you know, the first thing I think, uh, which is a great place to jump off from and start, is this term anti-racist, anti-racism and what it means. Um, some, uh, it is a term that has been in the space for a very long time, but one that um, only now a lot of people are waking up to and how being anti-racist is very different than being not racist. Um, And the first thing to kind of understand and acknowledge is that um, racism is a spectrum, right? It is not a matter of whether or not you are racist or aren't racist. It is a matter of which prejudices do you hold um, and against whom and why. Um, And that all of us, um, uh, non-Black folks, need to like tune into what that means um, for Black communities. And that there are versions of overt racism, uh, such as burning a cross in someone's yard, participating in the KKK, um, hate crimes uh, that are considered, you know, racism TM. Um, But there's all these covert versions of racism that are completely socially acceptable, such as um, the killing of black men by the police, such as having an all white executive board at your company, such as um, having a a, a blackface uh, mask sold by Gucci. Um, There's so many different ways um, that we hold people accountable to the difference between racism and uh, anti-racism and anti-racism. And we kind of wanted to talk about that today. I think Dennis um, has a really great definition and process for us. Yeah, I think it's always really important, especially when we're talking about sort of um, linguistic distinctions to to have a good definition to work with. And so I wanted to provide this to people, um, which for me makes a lot of sense. Um, anti-racism is the active process of identifying and eliminating racism by changing systems, organizational structures, policies and a- policies and practices and attitudes so that power is redistributed and shared equitably. And this is from NAC International Perspectives, Women in Global Solidarity. And so I think um, a big part of what Fran is alluding to and what we're talking about right now is that actually the, the framework and the term anti-racism has been around for a long time, for many years, but only in the last week or so has it really become has it really been thrust in sort of into like the popular imagination right so like um i'm on social media constantly because of the situation and i'm seeing you know major celebrities people like even freaking logan paul talking about anti-racism like people you never would have expected to because it's it's suddenly in um the public imagination. And now a lot of people are saying that it's no longer enough to just be, to just say, I'm not racist. And I think the distinction there is that um, typically the person who just says, I'm not racist is the person who thinks of racism as a personal matter and as a thing that is distant from them. And they're trying to remain distant from it. It's not the person who's actively trying to investigate investigate and understand where racism is in our society and how they can eradicate it. They're just like, I'm not racist. I'm not a part of that. Something else that's really important to highlight is that 
anti-race, uh, there's the diff- uh, another key difference between saying I'm not racist and being anti-racist is that it's a lot more uncomfortable to be anti-racist. You have to put yourself in the line of battle and speak up and speak out and hold others accountable to racism when you are anti-racist. It is a sacrifice that you need to make for Black communities and for this this larger movement so that the conversation can move as fast as possible. Don't get it twisted. This is a marathon, not a sprint. Um, Changes will not happen overnight. But right now, we have found heat and we can't lose that momentum. And it it is, you know, allies and non-Black folks that need to speak up um, and need to speak out against racism in a really big way. And that's why you are seeing on your Instagram and Twitter, you know, people that you never would have thought addressing these issues, addressing these issues. Porn stars, thirst traps, <laughs> uh, um, like white celebs that have never said a peep. Taylor Swift, Taylor fucking Taylor Swift, you, you guys. Can, like, can you just, can you like in your mind, go back like seven, 10 years and imagine that Taylor Swift would call out white supremacy and that Kanye would be having a mega hat on. Like, come on, like. <laughs> uh, it hurts. It's painful, y'all. It uh, hurts. I mean, I don't want to give Kanye any air. Even the Kanye actually has made substantive donations now to um, certain funeral funds and to all of the victims' lives. But like, fuck Kanye, we don't need. But also, to we talk about like racism um, and like let's say talk about um, uh, sports teams with their mascots and their names, tweeting about you know uh, black lives and stuff. And it's like also you could change your name from the Washington Redskins. You could do that mm-hmm. too. Like, yeah, I got an email from. Uh, from fucking Uber yep. saying we support black lives. And my boyfriend was on Amazon this morning and there's a banner on the top of Amazon that says we support black lives. And it's just like, well, there are a lot of black people who work for you who don't feel that way. Yep. Right. Yep. So it's, it is just so infuriating. Um, and, and, and that is where the performative nature of it's like, it's about systems and it's about dollars and it's about the minimum wage and health insurance. And when you tell people that they're not an employee, they're a contractor in order to not give them health insurance, you don't support black lives. It's it's like we like to personalize racism so much in America. It's like all about looking inside and internalize, you know, kind of like picking apart like, ooh, was my mom said this and therefore I was like when I was five and therefore I feel this way about these people now. It's like, no, if we engage in policies that maintain the status quo we are actively killing yes black mm-hmm. and, and if amazon ain't gonna pay taxes you know and invest that money in black communities you're fucking racist i'm sorry your you're whole organization racist. your whole thing your 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 style and approach is racist yeah. i i want to say on the amazon example is a really great testament to holding companies mm-hmm. accountable to anti-racism because there are a lot of companies now tweeting support but they're not using specific enough language i think ben and jerry's was really one of the first brands to actually say the words white supremacy mm-hmm. and to say dismantle the police state which is a, a bigger swing don't get it twisted all companies are bad um but they have but, a factory but, in israel uh, oh my God! No, I did not I know that. I also don't know that. Anyways, 
but on the but on the Amazon example, Amazon is obviously known for selling surveillance tech to like 500, 600 different police departments. The the amount of money that they donated was 0.0001% of what Amazon made last year and they continually dismantle um unions for Amazon employees, fired a black Amazon employee who was organizing and trying to um advocate for safer working conditions in COVID-19. Like if your if your policies do not, you know, work in line with your with what it is that you you're actually claiming to support it's empty l'oreal paris is another example of claiming you know black lives matter despite firing monroe bergdorf a trans activist from her contract um because because she spoke out against racism they fired her because she spoke out against racism and they have yet to apologize or atone or say anything at Um, all Companies need to be held accountable. I saw. I, I don't want to talk about companies too much, um, but you know me. I'm, I'm I I I work a lot in that space, and you know, Milk uh, Makeup had a really wonderful post where they they basically broke down the racial makeup of their company, and they said we don't have enough black people at this company. Here's a we have 45 employees. Here's how we comprise of. Here's how we're taking steps to make it better. That to me, like, is. A, a shame. It's uncom- It's an uncomfortable thing to do. It's a shame drenched thing to do. But it is what companies need to be doing right now. Because until you look into your policies, your your words yeah. are empty. Yeah, we're going to change if we don't do work. And just to like add um, to that, just a little bit. Um, one of the things, one of the wonderful things about this moment, and that I think does feel unique to this this instance of this moment is that people are having these conversations around companies and we're having these conversations in the publishing industry as well. It just came out yesterday that only 1% of publishers of editors in the publishing industry are black 1%. And so it's like pretty, you know, that conversation is happening there too. I want to take it back to the personal level really quick before we like end on end this topic and just go back to a quote that like Fran actually brought my attention to um, that I think is a really great way to also think about, Um, and understand anti-racism. It comes from the writer Ijeoma Oluo. And she writes, the beauty of anti-racism is that you don't have to pretend to be free of racism to be anti-racist. Anti-racism is the commitment to fight racism where you find it, including in yourself. And it's the only way forward. And I think this is a really important um, distinction to make as well, because part of understanding that racism is systemic in this, in, in really in the world, but in this country is understanding the fact that like we are all um, born and raised in this racist context. And we have all internalized, um, racist ideas into our thinking and our behavior. And so as much it is, as much as it's important to call out, um, our institutions for their role in all of this, you know, we also have to be looking at ourselves personally and, and internally and thinking about our everyday lives and the ways in which we're enacting racism. I know we have to, to, to wrap up the segment, but one other thing I wanted to do was just kind of talk to my community's risk, uh, talk to my community specifically and you know you're hearing us use the term non-black throughout this podcast and just all across the internet and that is with great intention we we're using the word non-black to address not just white people but the people in certain minority groups like me who are you know light-skinned latinos or what have you that are benefit from perpetrate are complicit in um and uh, white supremacy literally every day um so to non-black uh, Latinx folks um, continue to show up, continue to show out, continue to speak out against racism, and also talk to your family. I have a lot. 
my family's all cops, racist cops, racist Latino cops. And they're, and they're, it, this is like, there are so many intersections for us to work with in. Um, and beyond that, you know, faggots need to get it together too. <laughs> Native people, if you aren't showing up for black people right now, do not, you, you need to reevaluate your life. So a lot of the conversations we're having right now are specific to the police state. Um, you might be wondering why. Among many um, points brought up by people on the internet are, what about the good cops, quote unquote, um, talking about, uh, oh, like a few good cops, you know, should stand up and like, oh, look at these videos of cops kneeling and cops working in solidarity with the protesters, et cetera, et cetera. Um, there is no such thing as a good cop. There's a phrase going around uh, ACAB, all cops are bad, or all cops are bastards, however you want Oh, wanna... I thought that was assigned cop at birth. <laughs> assigned, oh, fuck you, I hate you. <laughs> fuck you. Um, and, and, but that, that, phrase is, that phrase is not just graffiti, it's a, it's a very intentional statement. Um, I think the first thing that I'm thinking about is that, you know, if, if, a, if a cop is trying to create change within their organization, that's great. Go for it. I'm proud of you. It is still an irrevocably broken system, and we still all pay their salaries with our taxes. Um, we had a contract with the police um, to protect us. That does not happen. Does not happen for Black people and brown people in this country. And, they broke that yeah, contract. Yeah, and like when you call um, one... That, that's when people die. You know what I mean? Like that they they yep. they they uh, inflame situations. Uh, they do not de-escalate situations, and they kill people. We don't need them. Remember, like a few years ago, when NYC when they 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 uh, uh, they protested and crime went down. Like LMAO. You want what's what are the what are the origins of police, y'all? Slave patrols. Uh, does anybody have? some nitty-gritty on the history behind it? Um, there was an article that went viral in Gen uh, on Medium uh, a couple years back that traces the history of, um, you know, essentially police forces. The first police forces in America were specifically around controlling the movement of slaves and indigenous Americans. And from those forces, uh, modern police have evolved Still, I think the thing that, you know, really drive the simple phrase that really drives it home with cops is they they protect property, not people. Right. They protect the mechanisms of capitalism and of capital. They're not here for our safety. It is not it is to protect and serve capital. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that, you know, is a well-worked historical uh, mechanism and tool that police have played for hundreds of years. And this is something that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez pointed out right from the jump. A lot of politicians are scared of the political power Mm -hmm. that these police forces have. They have so much more sway um, in justifying and protecting their flagrant killings of black people. Um, And that's why these, these murders are being erased and justified and stowed away over and over and over again. That's why you're seeing mayors in huge cities like Los Angeles and New York um, by the way, fuck the mayor of Los Angeles and the mayor of New York, um, because they are apt, they are fully ignoring all of these blatant, evidenced videos of police um, antagonizing and committing supreme amount of violence, and in some cases, 
um, like just life-changing violence, people going blind, people experiencing head traumas, people breaking their legs by way of just for simply uh, peacefully protesting or being out past curfew. And mayors are ignoring this because cops have such political power and such a big part of the the budget. Yeah. There's um, just two small things I want to add. I went to a talk. It must have been like 2011, 2010 of Vijay Prashad and Angela Davis at Columbia University. Uh, it was it was sort of um, a talk on prison abolition. Uh, and Vijay talked about something that I thought was just so incredible. He talked about the need for increased policing as America became a post-industrial uh, economy uh, because there was an excess in labor force. And this has a lot to do with why we saw the movement towards New Jim Crow. You had you know people who had worked industrial jobs. Those jobs are no longer there. You have to do something with those people. If you figure out ways to incarcerate them, then not only are those people out of the economy, but then you can make money off of them by, you know, having private prisons. So it is just uh, policing at every level is a is a systemic problem that ruins lives. Um, and, you know, then everyone is always like, well, what if there if there are no cops? What do we do? You know, there are models of community um, safety. There are models of how you fund mental health care and how you have people in jobs and how you have, you know, people within the community there to navigate conflict between individuals as opposed to cops coming in from some other fucking neighborhood who don't know anything and whose first impulse is not to defuse, right? So we know there are actual scholars doing work on what communities can look like with no cops in them and you know i just um my friend uh, josie duffy posted a thing about how uh most people a lot of people in white suburbs effectively live life without cops right cops are not the go-to you know they are not police there's essentially like no no real policing of individual behavior in those communities you know you have the same amount of drug use but people don't go to the jail for using drugs in the white suburbs so it's like yeah we could all live in a world without police. Wouldn't that be nice? I remember on the res when I was a kid, we used to play this, like if we were in the car and we saw a cop car, like the kids, we would duck. Like, cause we just, like, I, like every single man in my family and most of the women too have all been to jail. And mm. I remember being a kid for, on res, which like, I remember thinking like, well, how am I going to go to jail? Like, I can't imagine that, you know, I'll, I'll probably, I'll, I'll be the lookout. You know, I'll, I'll be the lookout and that's how I get busted. Like, that's just how I was raised Ooh. to believe that I was going to jail at some point. Like, Ooh, that's real. And don't go, don't get it twisted. We're not going to pretend like this is something that can happen overnight. Again, this is a marathon, not a sprint. Um, we are demanding very, you know, quote unquote, radical assessments of what it means to defund the police over and over again. Um, and, you know, organizers such as Charlene Carruthers are picking apart these very wishy-washy um, ideas of police reform, such as eight can't wait. I don't know if you've heard of these kind of, there's a policy going around about eight different policies that police can use to act reform. But Charlene Carruthers is saying, you know, why would we trust police departments to enact their own reform? That is so fucking they absurd. They could have been done that already. Corrupted. They could have already. Yes, you don't ask. You don't ask corrupt people to end corruption. You tear it down. That's why we're in the streets. That's why we're protesting. That's why we're taking matters into our own hands. Um, something you know to the point of what Joe said earlier, um, raised by the artist and filmmaker Tourmaline, is that police have not always existed in this country. Um, the Slave Patrol 2.0 is a recent invention, uh, more recent than you think, 
And a cop, a, a, a copless future, a police stateless future is not only possible, it's precedented, she says. Um, we can dismantle systemed systems designed to kill us. It's happened before. It's precedented. And it's beautiful to think about. Another thing, just very quickly, is that there are a lot of people raising conversations about, you know, cops are essential workers. Um, Cops are not workers. Uh, Cops, uh, a worker is someone who sells their labor to make ends meet. Um, This is a tweet from Pixie Dream Girl. Again, you'll you'll hear us. We're sharing, we're we're pulling this episode together quickly. So we're just kind of sharing resources that we've pulled to go, pulled together very quickly. Um, But you know, she says, cops do not do this. Um, they defend the interests and property of the wealthy. Cops don't need pay raises. They need to be defunded. All, their, all they are is a wing of, of the capitalist state. And that's why you hear we are so brainwashed by the capitalist state that people are, you know, talking, saying, what about the property? What about Macy's? What about yeah. Target? Like, protect these Macy's. buildings. We hurt Macy's feelings, mm-hmm. you all. Yeah. Buildings As though motherfucking Macy's will live to have another Thanksgiving motherfucking day parade. Okay. Oh, and you know, people, you know, why in in this, at least previously in this country, you know, the prominence of the KKK wasn't because people got woke. It was because they got defunct, like, because they got sued. Like their capital dried up. That's why they went away for like a minute or however long that they did. Like we could do that to the cops. Yes. So this is a great yeah. segue into uh, looting. Uh, Dennis, do you want to do you want to talk? So us I'm yeah, this? I'm going to talk a little bit about about um, looting and riots and the language around violence in all of this um, because you know I'm sure that many of you are seeing on social media and and on news media a lot of people are like, gosh, I sympathize with with them, but like all the looting and the riots need to stop and and. First, like everyone needs to know that a lot of the looting and a lot of the the turning these things violent is happening from like ignorant white protesters who don't know better and also infiltrators from far right groups that are trying to turn this violent to make the movement look really bad. So that's just one thing that you have to know, like right off the bat. But the other thing is that usually in these same conversations, people start talking a lot about Martin Luther King and the non, the nonviolence of the civil rights movement. And so I want to talk a little bit about that history because it's clear that a lot of times people don't really know. Um, much about what they're talking about. Uh, the fact of the matter is that the civil rights movement was never nonviolent. It was sparked by violence, um, specifically widespread beatings that black men, black servicemen were subjected to when they were returning from the war. Um, while it's true that like black and white ally protesters were trained in nonviolence, um, they courted white violence as strategy. Most Americans did not care about black people protesting nonviolent in the streets. And why would they have? Think about it. These were people who had tolerated lynchings, apartheid, terrorism, and fascism against black people and black bodies for centuries. Um, why would marching suddenly change their minds? And it, it didn't. Um, when Dr. King marched and sheriffs didn't respond with violence, white media didn't even cover these protests. Nothing happened as a result of them. Um, and what King understood and other movement leaders understood was that um, America has a tight, has an appetite for violence. This country was born of a violent uprising called the Boston Tea Party. Um, never forget that. So the strategy became baiting white people into violence in order to force white people to act. Demonstration locations were chosen based on the potential to draw violence. And when when um, Bull Connor sick dogs on children, white media picked up that story with a quickness. Um, civil rights legislation was born of all of that. It was born of black people being firebombed, water hosed, lynched, beaten by dogs and beaten to death by police while marching across a bridge. All violence. Um 
it's also worth noting that all of this was happening alongside the conversation around the Vietnam War. Um, the globally televised images of this supposed great democracy violently suppressing their own citizens became a national political embarrassment and it needed to be remedied. And so what that tells us is that white America didn't just wake up one day and decide that black people deserved equality. For the most part, they were ashamed into it. Um, when people talk about Dr. King, it's really important to understand these facts about about the movement, because the movement was actually centered around violence and um, black people and black leaders like Dr. King had to literally make conscious decisions to absorb white violence against our bodies in order to implore change. Our leaders had to make the decision to sacrifice our bodies, our health, our lives time and time again. So when we talk about um, looting, when we talk about all of that, in the context of this conversation, it's really important to understand that that's an outgrowth of the pain of having to have done this for so many years. And it's an outgrowth and an attack at the way in which capitalism has shaped um, basically the existence of being of being black in America. It is um, at times the destruction of property, but it's a political thing because, as we said in the previous conversation, um, police ultimately function to protect property over people. So all of these things are really interconnected. And I think that's like historical context that it's really important for people to know when they have this conversation, especially with folks who um, are more focused on, on looting than they are the death of black people. But also we're talking about this in the context of a global pandemic where spineless politicians are also protecting property. Mm -hmm. They're not like people don't have jobs, but their rent is not canceled. Fucking take shit Uh from the target, bitch. Like target makes billions. Take (laughs) shit from the target. Unless they cancel our motherfucking rent, take shit from the target. We're seeing that quote um, a lot of from Martin Luther King, riots are the language of the unheard. But something that we forget a lot is that riots and this kind of violence is a product of oppression. It is a product of taking resources away from black and marginalized communities and Black and marginalized communities seeking justice and trying to take it back. Um, Something else that's really important to note that a lot of people, you know, who are disapproving and talking too much about looting and talking too much about the riots is that property is not, property is inanimate, y'all. To quote um, the writer Ashley Reese, who wrote this beautiful piece for Jezebel, property, it doesn't breathe. Uh, Property doesn't breathe. It doesn't have hopes. It doesn't have dreams. It doesn't have mouths to feed. Um, We have, you know, properties like our homes, surely that are places of worship um, that have cultural significance, but a Target or a Macy's are not these places. Um, uh, so, you know, uh, she says, for many, for far too many Americans, it is easier to mourn the destruction of a series of chain stores owned and operated by millionaires than the, bl- than the death of a black American. A stolen lamp is, a, is worthy of a kind of empathy that a black person mm-hmm. could ever That target of. does not yeah. have a cop's knee on its neck. Nope. No, nope. it does not. I also, one thing I learned um, in my time living in France in 2005, 2006, I was a part of the student protests there. Uh, and one thing that I learned is that the type of protest that would here be labeled a riot uh, is actually an effective strategy because it costs a lot of mm-hmm. money to like have cops out all the time. And if you do it night after night and week after week, it starts getting in the way of capital. Yeah, yep. And 
the political machinery cares about motherfucking capital. So the the way we won in 2006 in the student protest was there would be, you know, unions would get out in the daytime. There'd be legal protests, hundreds of thousands of people. And then small groups of people would go stay out past the curfew, would get arrested on purpose, you know, would, would go through that whole thing. And it cost so much money to do this two to three times a week, four weeks, that the government had to cave on the policies that the students were protesting against. So, you know, there's a reason why in the rhetoric of the capitalist machine, they're like, don't riot, don't mm-hmm. riot, don't loot. Yeah, because it can be effective mm-hmm. as a strategy. And all, like, I remember, Paris is a good example, because I remember being there, and like sometimes you would just have to check in the morning to see if there wasn't a... a, a a protest so that you could like take the train, you know, because you're like, okay, okay, so they're protesting, okay, so I'm gonna have to find another way to get to work, like. <laughs> yeah, they love they love a strike there. They love a good old fashioned. And there's a lot of one of the cool things about France. I mean, it's, it's a joke that they're always striking. Something. One of the cool things about France is there's a lot of solidarity, and they still have strong unions. So you know, when something happens, they can. Uh, effectively get hundreds of thousands on the pe- of people on the street very very quickly and there's this sort of um, notion that when something fucked up happens you go do uh-huh. something about it you know and I think that that is something we can we can learn from and, and take in and, and see that there's a history of that here as well uh, and you know we can take heart in that. And also where is this concern when a bunch of white college kids start setting fire to cars because their fucking sports team didn't win or did win or whatever. D- yeah. Or did win. L-M-A-O. <laughs> Tell Preach. Um, We're going to talk about um, protest safety and protocol later, but I just wanted to highlight that, that the reason behind capital is one of the biggest reasons why we have to ignore the draconian curfews that are occurring in many cities across the country. And now there are nationwide curfews happening. If you are able to stay out past curfew, um, there are a lot of reasons why you might not be able to. We, we, we'll talk about that later. But if you're able to stay out past curfew, that is so essential to the organizing labor. Um, it, it is part of defeating and defunding this capital. Um, and something else we need to talk about, faggots. How many times do we need to say it? Pride was a fucking riot. Stonewall was started because of police brutality, queer liberation, and how we understand it from 1969 on was, you know, was catalyzed by police brutality. And Stonewall was not, you know, a day where someone threw a brick and everything was better. (laughs) It was, it was literally, that's not how it happened. (laughs) (laughs) It was, you know, right. it was, you know, reportedly, and we don't have a lot of, of we don't have a lot of, you know, cut, cut and clear and dry ideas of this because it was all oral history and largely un, underreported from news news organizations. But it could be, it was as long as five days of rioting, looting, violent mm-hmm. protests against police. And these riots, which were led by black and brown, trans and queer folks, were exactly why you faggots got married. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It, it is the reason that, that we as queer people have so much more than what we had in 1969. That's why you have a couple so, Instagram, bitch. So I want to see you in the streets. That's right. And like, what you know, allies are long overdue to show up. Um, there was a there was a lot of sentiment, you know, on June first of people saying, and I was guilty of this. Um, people saying, you know, Pride is canceled. We're focusing our efforts on on Black lives, but you know, Black queer people. Are, are this is their time. We actually need to center Black queer voices because Black queer voices created our movement, are the template for our movement, um, and and it is it is just so important that you know when we talk about 
riots and looting and why you're focusing on them. Ask yourself, you know, okay, cool. If you have a problem with like riots and looting, whatever. How else do you plan on protesting? Mm-hmm. If you don't want to, if you don't want to protest, if you don't want to be on the streets, if you don't want to loot, if you don't want to riot or whatever, wh- what are you going to do? Who are you going to call? What reps are you calling? What what bail funds are you donating to? Um, hold those people accountable instead of wasting your energy and arguing. Um, little confession: I've always wanted to ask Meghan McCain that very question. <laughs> what are you going to fucking do then? Wow! I'll put uh, on my wig and you can pretend that I'm her, Dennis. <laughs> I think a nice a nice place to end this this conversation uh, comes from a quote of Solomon Georgia, amazing queer black comedian. Black people have every right to burn down a country they built for free. Shout it from the rooftops. Hello. Ooh, a word. Hey all, uh, this is Joe, and I wanted to talk about protesting and safety and COVID. I've been getting this question so much from basically everyone I know uh, who knows that I've been working on COVID stuff for a couple of months. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not a medical doctor. I have a PhD in uh, biophysics where I study viruses and, and bacteria, but I've been paying really close attention to the COVID literatures. Uh, so um, people want to ask, is it safe? Is it risky? What do we know? And the, the truth is, there is a lot we don't know about COVID-19 and protesting, and it is not without risk, right? So uh, anytime you have groups of people within a few feet of each other, there is risk of transmission. And we are really scared of uh, sort of a spike of cases that might be related to people going to these these protests. One thing that has, you know, I am not telling anyone not to go. Uh, I don't I don't want to say that at all. One thing that makes me incensed and so sad is that the very same people who are being harmed the most by COVID, which is black and brown Americans, are the same people who are subject to the most police violence. And it is like, a double bind that is horrible to have to choose between being quiet about police brutality and, you know, being uh, fearful of COVID risk. So, uh, you know, I think that we, what I want to talk about is just what are the risks? How are some ways you can keep yourself as safe as possible? If you do choose to go out, the good news in all of this is that being outside is good. Okay, so there was a study out of China that tracked 7000 covid cases and tracked all of the transmissions. So did contact tracing of everyone. And of the 7000 cases, there was only one transmission outside. Okay, so all of the air in the outside, the sunlight, everything that is good for covid transmission and keeping the risk low. The bad news is that one case was a case of two people who got together outside and spoke to one another for some time. Right. So any again, anytime you're outside and close to people, there is uh, a risk of that. We also know that the way covid spreads is by what we call can spread by super spreading events. And one thing that worries me about this is there was a case in Washington where it was a super spreading case that happened at a choir practice. So we do think that there is something about using your voice in particular ways that can actually help spread the virus. So if you're at protest, it might be a good idea to bring noisemakers instead of shouting, right? If that's something that you feel comfortable with, that would help keep your risk 
relatively lower and importantly, keep the risk of everyone else. You know, it's a good idea if you can to go with your, I, I'm, I've been protesting for a long time and I'm a huge fan of protest buddies. You want to go with people, have their phone numbers, you know, write down phone numbers on your skin with Sharpie of both a lawyer, um, the lawyers guild and your buddies. Uh, but try to keep that if you can to the people you've been, uh, quarantining with your quarantine pod, right? If your quarantine pod and your protest buddies can be the same people, Again, that limits the number of other people who you come close to. The shitty thing about protests is that you can't control everything, right? So, you know, the police are starting to corral people a lot, and that puts a lot of people in closed quarters. People at the police at these protests have been arresting people indiscriminately. And that is just something that as someone who's protested for a long time, you know that there's a risk of that, right? It can be three in the afternoon before whatever. You could get on the Brooklyn Bridge with hundreds of people and they can cut off both ends and swoop everybody up. We saw that starting with Occupy, but it certainly has been happening for years and years, right? Being arrested is very high risk for COVID. And there is no way to protest without any risk of arrest, right? Um, we know uh, in, in conversations with lawyers um, from the NYCLU that are organizing with us that people are being sent to Rikers uh, from these protest arrests. Typically, you expect people to be um, sort of booked and released that same night. They're starting to hold people for 24 plus hours, we're getting reports of. And then if people are being suspected of looting, right, they are being sent to Rikers. And Rikers is a very unsafe place to be in terms of COVID-19. You know, I think all of this is telling me that the, all of this activist movements need to come together. The COVID activists have been trying to get people out of Rikers because it's a dangerous place to be. We need to keep protesters out of Rikers. And we also need to educate ourselves that, you know, the risk of being arrested is a high risk activity in terms of COVID. So I just want to, again, I want to end up by saying uh, some to do's, wear a mask if you can. You know, use other noise making mechanisms besides your voice would, would keep your risk low. Go with your quarantine buddies. Try your best to avoid arrest uh, unless you're OK with the increased COVID risk. Importantly, get if you're protesting regularly, get tested for COVID regularly. Right. So seven to 10 days after a protest, if you can afford it, if you have insurance in New York, it should be free for everyone. Go get the test and make sure it's a PCR test and not an antibody test. All right. If you're if you feel sick or you have a fever, stay home from the protest. There will be other protests to go to. Right. If you think you might have covid, you got to keep your body away from the other bodies that we're trying to be in solidarity with. Right. So that is sort of like caring for other people by staying home um, specifically. Right. I, I, I was so, I, I yeah. just assume that I, I have it even if I'm not sick and that like I could be transmitting it uh, as an asymptomatic person. And that's why I wear masks yep. and that's why I have hand sanitizer and all that kind of shit. Nikki was telling yep. me she was, cause she's, my friend Nikki, love her so much, kind of a germaphobe. She was like, I didn't drink water for five hours before I went to the protest cause I didn't want to have to use a public bathroom. <laughs> Bathrooms are sites of COVID spreading, we think, right? So any yeah. place where people come into contact, you come into contact with surfaces, uh, it's tough. You know, social distancing is still a thing, right? So all of the things that we were doing to be socially distant, to wear masks, to wash hands, to be careful, those are also ways to care for and love your protest yep. community. I, I was talking to more. 
I was talking to Morgan about it because like there was maybe a because information is fine, but there was like maybe a protest on Western. And my friend Morgan, I live three Janet Jackson songs away from her, and she was like, "Should we go? What's going on? What's this thing?" And I was like, "But what about the global pandemic?" And she was like, "Oh fuck, I forgot! Like so many people just forgot." Yep. <laughs> <laughs> There's so and you know yeah, it is like actually easy to forget, and I think that's you know something that's really harrowing. Um, while we're still on the topic of COVID is that, you know, this is not the, this is truly not the uh, celebration to mark the end of the pandemic that in a group situation that we were all hoping for. The pandemic is still going on and we are very much so so still victim to it. Um, But it does feel good to protest and to be a part of of these um, large gatherings. But to, to Joe's point, please, please, please stay at home. If you have recently been exposed, if you have any symptoms, if there's literally any risk, the number one thing about protesting safety is to not show up in these very large groups and potentially spread it. COVID-19 is disproportionately killing Black people. If you believe that Black lives matter, you will mitigate and minimize COVID risks at protests. Exactly. Not to mention that racism has killed more people than COVID-19. But to, Joe, but to Joe's point, it's like, it's like racism is inherent in the COVID-19 pandemic. Exactly. Um, so, you know, segueing into protesting safely, um, there are a lot of graphics going around about, you know, what to do and what not to do. Um, there are also varying degrees of protest that you can take, take, um, you can partake in. You know, some people want to be on the front lines. Some people want to be arrested. Activists and organizers are using their bodies and putting themselves on the line to help dismantle the police state, getting arrested as part of that. Um, and we, you know, applaud and respect the people that are willing to, um, uh, you know, forfeit that risk. Um, if you're going out to a protest, tie your hair up, get gloves, wear masks. If you plan on being on the front lines, you need goggles. Um, to protect from tear gas, to protect from rubber bullets, which have reportedly been blinding blinding people and people severing, um, uh, experiencing severe head traumas. Bring a helmet. Um, make sure to bring snacks, bring water. There should be, if you, uh, you know, are going to certain protests, there should be um, medics on the line. There should be, you know, snack snacks and water um, um, stations at these protests if they're organized appropriately. Um, you know, bring first aid. Don't bring weapons. Don't bring things you don't want to be arrested with, i.e. like drugs. Um, don't bring jewelry, um, things that can be used to to put the things that can be pulled off of you, things that can get caught. Um, Leave you your dangly you. earrings at home. <laughs> yes, exactly. If you, if you get caught up in some of these. And I think, you know, two really important things to highlight are um, one, if you're going out to protest big or small plan, it, don't plan on, you know, if it gets violent, plan on when it gets violent. Um, this is not because protests are inherently violent. It is because police states across the country are inciting violence and planting ways that protesters can get violent so that they have an easier and quicker reason to arrest you. Um, that is why curfews are instated. They want to arrest more people. That is why you're seeing, you know, um, graphics going around about large piles of bricks that are reportedly being planted by cops um, so that people will throw them and incite violence. Um, there are so many different ways that, you know, cops are working to make sure that it. Oh, my violent. God. Cops want to also, be violent. Like, the other day in Los Angeles, the curfew was set at four o'clock. The alert didn't go out until 430. That is in yes, place it was to arrest people. Draconian. 
Truly draconian. Definitely right. Find out the, the the local lawyers guild that is representing protesters. Write their phone number on your body in Sharpie, usually on your arm. The the phone number of your protest buddy or someone who can pick you up at jail support. Write that on on your body in Sharpie. Um, you you may or may not be able to make a call, but you won't have access to your phone. Take your um, touch. Uh, phone thing off so that you have to put in a code. Cops can make you put your thumb to your phone, but they can't make you put in a code. Um, and this is very important. You know, uh, invoke your right to remain silent. Do not tell the cops anything. There are also reports uh, that FBI agents in New York have been um, working with uh, counterintelligence police to uh, ask people about their political beliefs. Since Antifa has been designated as a terrorist organization, you under, are under no obligation to answer questions. Specifically, you have to specifically invoke your right to remain silent and request a lawyer. Uh, there are teams at the NYCLU and the ACLU that would like to hear from you if the police or the FBI have asked you about your political beliefs, right? So uh, use the resources that are being offered to protesters for sure and learn about your rights and invoke them because the police will try to get you to not invoke the rights that are warranted to you. Take the face recognition off. Yep. I had two friends that were arrested last night and it was a really great lesson in uh, an unfortunate um, circumstance, but a, a lesson learned on how to tackle these situations. When you're an activist, if you're someone who plans on being on the front lines of this situation, you need a safety plan. You need to document that your roommate or your emergency contact has someone who is not protesting that has an outlined step of steps of things on how you can get picked up because right now what is happening is cops are not invoking your rights cops are you know not um giving people their calls cops are not you know do, doing anything that they should be doing with arrestees um so as joe said right good call on your on or the national lawyers guild on your arm that's 8333 good call um i had really great experiences with them last night and and, and helping understand um, where you're getting arrested um as if you are about to be arrested as quickly as you can um, post a story, post something on social media that states where you're at so we can figure out what precinct or what, what area you're at and, and figure out where you might be you, you might be held um, because that helps the National Lawyers Guild and, and organizers as well um, get in touch with um, the, 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 the people that are holding you because they're not going to invoke your rights, but a lawyer can call on behalf of you and invoke your rights for you um, and provide additional protection um, and, and there are also ways to escalate situations like that if you are a black woman, if you are black and queer and gender nonconforming, because you are then at high risk. Um, police states are disappearing people. Um, they're mistreating people and um, abusing them in, in, in confinement. And, and it's, it's just, it's, it's, it's just treat, it, it sounds dystopian. It sounds like conspiracy. It sounds alarmist, but you have to plan for the worst case scenario if you are planning on being anywhere near the front lines. And you never know when the lines you're on are going to become the front lines. Exactly. All right, listen, I was in my first protest when I was in fifth grade. I've been going to protest my whole life. When I was in New York, I feel like I was protesting every weekend for something, especially after the election. But even before that, you know, I did the anti-war protests. Like, I've just, I've been in these streets. And I feel very impotent right now because I am not, I can't do that. Um, 
I, I'm not in, within walking distance to a protest myself at any given time. I'm not, I don't, I don't drive and I don't have a car, so I can't get there. I'm in LA. This place is big. It's not for people on foot. Um, and I'm just, because of COVID, I'm not taking transportation and I'm not want to get in a ride share either. So I've had to take a step back and protest from home. Um, I get up, the first thing I do every morning when I get up is donate to a bail fund organization because that's what I can do. I am out, I order um, food from black restaurants. You know what I mean? Like I'm, I'm here for my friends, you know? Um, and so I thought like, maybe we could talk about strategies and ways that we could protest from home. How are you guys doing this? Uh, you know, just as Tommy said, going out and protesting is a risk assessment. And that's one that, you know, I, I actually was planning on not protesting for a handful of personal reasons. Um, and, you know, I ultimately decided to show up, but there, there's no shame in not being able to show up as a body um, to, especially to black and disabled people, especially to black and undocumented people. Um, you don't feel shame about not being able to show up in these spaces. There's so many other ways we can show up. Um, I think first things first, we talked about this earlier, dismantle your your working environments um call out your company when when they when they are um um pulling bullshit posts about black solidarity you're seeing examples of this um at the new york times at paper magazine at the philly inquirer and a lot of media properties um you're seeing examples of this all across the country of people's the people rightly so in a really powerful way weaponizing this cultural moment against their powers that be to say hey you claimed you were going to show up, but you're not actually showing up. Here's all the reasons why. Um, it is it is in your favor if you want to make if you want to take that risk and and think that now is the time to stand up. We will applaud you. And if for some reason you are fired for standing up, tweet about it. We will retweet you. We will amplify what it is you have to say. There will be people in place to protect you. Um, of course, this is this is a risk that comes with with certain privileges. So, you know, know your own person and know what you need to do. Know, know what you're able to do based on your identity and what situation you're in. It's a case by case. But just know that you will be protected um, by the by your communities. Yeah. I relate to the to the way Tommy's feeling as well, because although I've not generally been a protester in my life, I would be protesting for this, but I have asthma, so I'm immunocompromised, so I'm not going to protests. And so, um, and I also don't have a whole lot of money right now because of the COVID situation in my status as a freelancer to donate, although I've donated um, to some bail funds. But where I feel like I can be really effective and where a lot of people can be really effective who can't necessarily show up in those ways is also thinking thinking and dealing with local policy, right? So like we're dealing with a police state and we're dealing with, with the cops. And when it comes to a lot of the laws that are in place um, that are to their benefit, a lot of those things are done locally. There's a lot of judges that are elected that, that are that are up for re-election who are um, making things easy for police officers to get off when they're committing these crimes. And so... Um, when it comes to even things like body cam laws, like you can be calling your representatives, you can be writing to your representatives, you can do all of these things to make sure that your voice is heard and to remind them that they're accountable to you. Because at the end of the day, again, a lot of the policies that we're having to deal with in this larger national conversation are actually local policies. Um, and so I think that's just a really important thing to think about is like studying up on your local your local context and your local situation and figuring out how you can, you can voice your opinions in that way. And like aldermen, like people who mm -hmm. decide what books kids are reading in their, in public, in their public schools, like those people are elected. Yeah. Yes. You know? Yeah. 
I also think it's great to think hyper locally in terms of your own community. You know, um, I have a bunch of friends that I protested with off and on for years. Uh, I text them every day. Are you going today? Are you not? Um, you know, you can bring people food for after they protest. You can offer to provide jail support if they get arrested, be the person who goes to the precinct and picks them up. You know, there are all sorts of ways to care for uh, the people who are able to to protest um, that that helps facilitate this movement as well. And just, I think, you know, making an intentional community of care uh, so that people are taken care of in this moment that's so hard uh, is, is a way, it, it is a political act, not just, you know, self-care, but care for your beloveds, you know, your beloveds both who can and can't uh, protest. A lot of people, you know, are figuring out how to, are are struggling with the idea of like, I don't have money, how do I show up? And that's okay. Um, We can get creative. You know what I mean? I'm recently unemployed and don't necessarily have a ton of expendable income, but I'm giving everything, I'm giving all my fund money to bail funds and to, you know, all all the um, uh, different resources floating around right now. Um, but I'm also going to be opening up. I get, I come constantly asked out on coffee dates. Um, people are asking me, how do I launch my podcast? How do I do X, Y, Z? Um, asking for free labor, um, which is usually time consuming and hard to fit into my schedule. I'm going to be opening up office hours to do that for black queer creatives, black creatives in general. Um, do free consulting work. If you're a designer, do free design work for um, protesters who are organizing for their posters. Um, uh, you can get so, so creative. I have a friend who's a filmmaker who is offering to read scripts for black filmmakers. Um, I have a friend who texted me the other morning and she said, um, she's she's a disabled uh, mom, and she said, I have to stay at home for protests, but I can babysit anybody who, for anybody who wants to go out and protest, I'm sorry, I'm getting emotional. <laughs> um, but the, the ways that we are going to show up for each other in this moment are going to define us. Um, they're going to define everything, all the ways that we come out of this moment. Um, so get creative in the ways that you show up for people. I'm feeling full, but like I could fit one more thing inside of me. Dennis knows how I feel. Ooh. Yes, I do. (laughs) This is quite a serious episode, but we still wanted to end with a little balm for our time. And that is recently Netflix dropped The Lovebirds, starring Issa Rae and Camille Nanjiani. Um, Initially, it was slated for a theatrical release, but, you know, people ain't going to theaters no more. So it's out on Netflix. Um, It's a a romantic comedy, ostensibly romantic comedy. The first one from Michael Showalter since The Big Sick, which came out a few years ago, also starring Camille Nanjiani. Um, I just wanted to point to it because it's, it's... I've seen it 15 times since it came out um, just because it's, it's, it's very rewatchable. It's there. There's not a lot of tension in it. So it's like, it's, it's a, it's a nice thing to put on at the end of the night after a really hard day. Um, it's an interesting romantic comedy. First of all, there's a shit ton of Brown love in that movie. Second of all, it's really only a romantic comedy for the first, like, two minutes and then it becomes something completely different. Um, it's like, it's, it's funny. They have such a good, uh, 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 comedic chemistry together because largely a lot of it or in certain scenes it was um, all improvised and you could tell because like th- there are some scenes in the trailer that are not in the movie and that's just because they had an abundance of lines to choose from. Like in the movie, like um, Issa Rae slaps that white man and calls him a little beanbag bitch, which I thought was the funniest, the funniest line in that uh. in that trailer. 
I know, but like it's not end up it's not in the movie. Uh, but that but like that there's a it's a very there's a whole line. scene where they're just like they they um in, they they get into this apartment and there's just like a bunch of like young white men in there and they just call them little Brett Kavanaugh's. <laughs> No, uh, I forgot about uh, that. Which is really good. Also, I like the fact that it's like it's set in New Orleans and not like Los Angeles or New York, which is like usually where these movies occur. Mm-hmm. I think Camille, he's not my favorite actor, but he's gotten better since The Big Sick. Oh, stop it, Tommy. <laughs> I will not handle another diatribe against my husband, Kumail Nanjani. How dare you? Fuck and you. he's definitely oh. on the road to getting his Marvel body in this movie. Like, it, he is very oh, sort yeah. of square-shouldered, square-jawed. And there's a moment he where looks, um, he looks good. that he and Issa have to change clothes so they get, like, raver outfits from, like, a discount drugstore. And there's she starts to pull up his shirt, but it, like, pulls away and it closes up on, on the both of them because I think, like, if you actually saw his body, it would make the character unbelievable because he is so <laughs> getting his fitness, you know? Um, and it, I, you know, there's a there's a thread of the amazing race through it that really puts the whole narrative into a different kind of focus. And, and it, and, you know, and Kamel's character d- like doesn't watch reality TV and Issa's like, you make documentaries. Those are just reality shows that nobody watches. <laughs> 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 so it's, it's lighthearted. It's joke dense. It's fun. Um, and I, I, I recommend it if, you know, if you're having a hard time with the world and you need to check out for like an hour and a half. Props, absolutely props to seeking joy where you can in this moment. Um, a lot of us are just uh, uh, heavy right now, and I'm experiencing less and less, you know, moments of laughter and joy through each day. So, you know, take time for yourself to enjoy things like lovebirds. I also want to say that I really love that this film features an interracial couple that doesn't have a white person. That is such a relief. Um, it is so, it should not be, you know, prominent or it's something that, you know, is, is of note, but it actually is and very rare, um, especially in rom-coms. Um, so I, I just really loved how seem because I felt that, I had, people disagree with me, but I felt that their chemistry, their on-screen chemistry was really great. I really loved the way they worked together as comedians um, and how they played off of each other. I thought it was really seamless and I believed their relationship. Um, but um, I, I just, this movie was such a joy um, to watch and a great release from the world right now. So I'm sorry, um, yeah. but like, okay. And this is, me and Fred are not going to agree on this, but like, there's this look that Camille has when he's supposed to be giving an emotion. And it was it prominently featured in The Big Sick, and it's less and less here. But there are, mo- he has this like little twinkle in his eye, and it's like, you're supposed to be delivering a complicated feeling, and I just don't really believe you right now. So that's my controversial take on this one. <laughs> um, I would also, so I haven't seen it yet, which is surprising to no one. Um, but I would also just say that there's like, to connect it slightly back to like the larger conversation that we're having here, there's a lot of conversation happening um, on all over Al Gore's internet about um, tension between Black and Asian communities and like coming together for the sake of Black Lives Matter. And I just think it's really timely and interesting that there's this this movie um, that has this interracial relationship that we really haven't seen um, that type of relationship in media before at this moment when that conversation is happening. So that's like, you know, a cool way to like, think about it and lens maybe to view it um, through as well. And also like the, the inciting incident of the movie is that like they have to be on the run because the cops will never believe that they didn't commit this crime. Like, yeah. so it's, it's very relevant to our, our moment.
This episode of Food for Thought is made possible by the generous, unequivocal support of Rosé and our home at iHeartRadio. Our producer is currently playing with her anti-racist cat son, Alexandra De Palma. Our production manager is fully outfitted in protective gear for the revolution, Elizabeth D. And our social media manager is staying her ass at home, but keeping her heart in the fight, Christina Tucker. Subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes, or else Joe comes over and shits in your bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I can't Ew. wait to get off this call and take a poo. <laughs> Oh my god. I am Tommy Teebs Pico. You can find me at Hey Teebs, H-E-Y-T-E-E-B-S on all relevant social media. I'm Joseph Osmondson. You can find me at www.josephosmondson.com. I am Fran. You can find me at Fran Squish Co. on Instagram and Twitter. And I'm posting about a lot and retweeting a lot of um, protest updates, updates and organizing work. Um, so please do follow me if you're looking for more information. And I'm Dennis Norris II. And you can find my angry tweets at the Earl Denden, T-H-E-E-A-R-L-D-E-N-D-E-N. Find us on Instagram at Gay Sluts Who Read and join us uh, on Facebook and Twitter at Food for Thought Pod, where each week we pin some questions at the top of our page to continue the discussion of this week's main topic. Sign up for a newsletter to see a list of everything we're reading and some extra delectable content at foodforthoughtpodcast.com. And finally, send your questions, thoughts, concerns, and dick pics, dick pics. to thoughts at foodforthoughtpodcast.com. As always, that's food, the number four, and thoughts spelled how? T-H-O-T-H-O-T. <laughs> Never. Okay, that wasn't that wasn't terrible. It was be- it's terrible. the best one yet. Yeah, we got better. <laughs> Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.